Welcome to Pearls of the Minion. After consulting with multiple comrades and discussing how to best approach this, I have decided to record this as a disclaimer. Near the end of the episode, I was interrupted by a guest. In fact, this person had been inserting himself into the conversation multiple times leading up to it. I have decided to keep this in as an example of how microaggressions happen and how they even happen on the left. The person is British. I had laid down ground rules weeks before and the day of the recording reiterated these rules. If you are British, please write down your questions and let me look at it before you speak. Why did I do this? This podcast episode is a way to uplift voices who are under British occupation. This podcast in general is giving voice to a minority group of anti-Zionist ML Jews. To be interrupted as a Jew and as a woman by a man really deeply bothered me. In addition to the fact that as a British person, he continued to insert himself into a conversation with those living under his country's oppression. I have grown accustomed to being interrupted and ignored by men on a regular basis. I've learned to call this out when it happens. If you are a man living in the Imperial Corps and identify as an ML, read Women Marxists. Read history about how oppressed peoples have fought against what your country has done to it. Read what your country has done to oppress other nations and fight against it. Welcome to Pearls of the Minion, the Talmudic tankies who are here in Belfast. I am Talia. I am the only Minion who is here. Um, I am here with... Oh, I'm also drinking dragon soup! (laughs) Uh, It's strawberry and lime. This is, uh, I guess, it's sort of like Four loco. I'm about to die. It's disgusting. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Uh, And I'm here with... Stephen from the CYM. Uh, the Colony Youth Movement, based here in Belfast. I'm drinking Rock Shore, also known as a can of that new stuff. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Irish Lager, 4%, and it's, it's pretty standard. This is 8-Hop. I'm just drinking some random whiskey I found on the shelf. I can't remember what it was called. Bushmills. Bushmills. It's uh, decent. Yeah. I'm Rory Lennon, and a member of the Colony Youth Movement, and I have just finished my cup of tea. I'm Connor. I'm with the YCL, and I'm also drinking tea. I'm Shane, I'm also a member of the Young Communist League, I'm also a member of the Communist Party Britain, and I'm drinking a Dragon Soup Dark Fruit Punch. Alright, <laughs> so we're here today to discuss something that's pretty important and something that we've talked a lot about on Pearls of the Minion, about uh, Palestine, Palestinian struggles, and how we can assist and how important international uh, relationships are to uplifting those who are oppressed by um, imperialism. And I'm going to let Rory start uh, talking about the historical context of Ireland and its oppression and how it relates to Palestine. Yeah, so the internationalism of the Irish struggle would have stemmed from mainly the actions of both the Provisional IRA 
and the official IRA in a period which is known as the Troubles in the North, which would have happened from 1968 to roughly 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. But the historical context of that conflict predates itself um, to the creation of the Northern State when Ireland was partitioned by the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, effectively creating two right-wing states. As Connolly said, a partition of Ireland would create a carnival of reaction. You would have a right-wing unionist state in the north which would subjugate Catholic people and the nationalist community, and you would have another right-wing state in the south based off um, Irish far-right Catholicism as well. So the northern state existed as an arm of the British Empire, and it was very much so a Protestant state for a Protestant people. Protestant workers in the North at the time received marginal benefits for supporting imperialism, which meant better jobs, better housing, all in the context of industrial Britain through um, the shipyards and the major manufacturing complex that was in the North at the time. Um, but Catholics didn't have this. And because the creation of the Northern State itself born out of violence from the War of Independence and the subsequent riots and pogroms that happened to Catholic people in the early 20s all the way through to the 60s when the so-called Troubles kicked off. So the North itself was highly militarised from its inception. You had legislation such as the Special Powers Act which would have crushed any political dissent and would later have been adopted by the Minister of Justice in South Africa to replace their own legislation of political repression. This Protestant state for a Protestant people um, had a large repressive apparatus made up of the, R the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was the standard police force, and it also had auxiliary paramilitary forces which acted on behalf of the state known as the B Specials and the C Specials. And these would mainly have been working class Protestant men who were able to carry guns around in plain clothing and were able to take the law into their own hands essentially against against a, a subjugated nationalist minority in the north at the time. And this, this repressive apparatus of the state, the judicial system, was backed by a parliamentary unionist party which, which fully supported these actions. So we can be under no illusions that this was some sort of liberal democracy, liberal western democracy, because it wasn't. It was essentially, I would say, an apartheid state. It was a quasi-fascist state. And that becomes quite evident when you see that come the 70s and 80s when the Troubles or the more aptly named the Second Civil War of Ireland that Loyalists who the British state become to rely on to fuel sectarian conflict um, adopt the imagery of South African apartheid and they, they adopt the imagery of Israel flags and very, very much take the opposing side of the Republican struggle which is one of internationalism and one of one of liberation. So the parallels become become very evident. And like like Israel, I think unionism in the north at the time relies upon a very siege mentality. Well what about these Islamic terrorists, etc. The very very much the same thing would have happened with the IRA, provisional or official, in the northern state when the troubles came around. And unionism relies on these internal threats and it did so from its very inception. The southern state being one that was seen as this Catholic, foreign, non-British, a threat, a threat mm -hmm. to a threat to their identity. And also northern nationalists um, were seen as a threat 
to the right entity, so therefore they had to be subjugated by the repressive apparatus of the state as well. I think uh, Roy makes a very good point there, um, particularly about Ulster unionism. But I wouldn't, I would also want to say that that siege mentality still uh, definitely much um, exists. The two main major uh, unionist parties here in the north are the Ulster Unionist Party, who were very much um, well involved with the peace process here uh, in the late 1990s, and Brennan Edo Catholics um, in the political life here. And it's no surprise that given that compromise, that party has essentially been almost reduced to nothing um, compared to the more hardline Democratic Unionist Party, who um, previously did have links with loyalist paramilitary organisations and was spearheaded by Reverend Ian Paisley, who, um, amongst all friends, was extremely uh, homophobic. He led the Ulster against sodomy campaign, which sought the recriminalize homosexuality when was that? in the north. That would have been in the sixties and seventies. Okay. I believe. Um, I'm not quite sure what year it started at, but it was formed around the church that it led, which is a splinter from the Presbyterian Church, called the Free Presbyterian Church, which takes a very anti-Catholic line, basically Catholicism in that religion is the ultimate heresy. So much so that when he was a member of the European Parliament actually stood up uh, when uh, the Pope at the time, Pope John Paul II, gave a speech and called him the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, well, you know, between, you know, like Republican circles here, well, particularly, I think me and Rory have talked about this before, that it's very funny how, you know, it sort of proves the horseshoe fairy that Irish Republican socialists <laughs> and uh, hate the Pope as much as Ian Paisley does. Um, but uh, I, I would say that that siege mentality is still pretty much there. What I would say, what I wouldn't say anymore, that um, the North is an institutionally apartheid or segregated region as of now. Um, there's a lot of the legacy of that still um, carries on. So the Democratic Unionist Party right now mm. are currently spearheading the campaign to. Um, basically keep the Irish language out of public life. Um, there is no official Irish language act here. If you look in, in Britain, for example, and in the free state, in the Irish free state, there's recognition for the native language. They have some sort of um, representation in public life, but that's not the case here. You won't find any Irish language signs on any streets or any corners um, because that's the that siege mentality is is still there. Besides yeah. the Republican areas, which yeah, have to use the Irish language yeah. as a language of resistance. And in Minyan, we talk a lot about how important it is to for the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, mm -hmm. to learn Yiddish yeah. and to learn yeah. Ladino and how yeah. important it is and how revolutionary that language is. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's the same connection that the Irish language is to the Irish. Yeah. And Connolly yeah. wrote about it, which I found really powerful. Yeah. Um, because it is basically a fuck you to the colonizers <laughs> yeah. and to yeah, the it, imperialists, like to keep yeah. that language. Like Bobby Sands wrote in Irish. Yeah, it's 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 almost like your own personal uh, act of anti-imperialism. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, that's why one of the reasons I was I was so inspired by the Irish language growing up and always wanted to learn it was because of what became known as the jail talk. So when the Irish word for an Irish-speaking region. 
usually to the west of the country where, where the language managed to exist, despite the feelings of the free state to protect the language. They were known as Gaeltacht areas. Um, so by the time the Republican prisoners moved in to Longkesh, the colonial prison, in the 70s and 80s, they began to learn Irish and spoke Irish amongst themselves. So the screws or the guards didn't know what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And they could pass information along and shout, or the OCs in the prison could shout orders to the prisoners in Irish and the screws would have no idea what was going on. And the CYM have that in our culture as well. So we aim to give Irish language classes to all our members. We do attract a lot of Irish language activists, a lot of people yeah. who receive schooling through the Irish medium as well. So it's definitely something we, we tapped into as well. I mean, there's there's instances of CY members being stopped by the police and them only responding in Irish. Good. It's, mm. you can't, you still can't go to court and speak, you're not allowed, allowed to speak Irish in court, mm. in the British court system. So while the Good Friday Agreement brought about a so-called peace. The, the cultural war against republicanism essentially still still exists. And yeah. while, while in word you're allowed to identify as Irish, in practice that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. You can't express your Irishness to the full extent, yeah. which is the language it's, as well. It's, yeah, it's essentially the Good Friday Agreement laid out the parameters where me and Rory um, can and do hold Irish passports. But for example, we can't vote for who the president of Ireland is. Um, even though you know diaspora in all countries can do that, um, yep. you know in all the, you know we can't we're on you know the same island. Um, Ray makes a very good point there about how you know republicanism still now is you know culturally under, I say it's culturally under attack, um, and I think it's evident even in the free state here, whose government is deeply um sort of ashamed and and embarrassed about the revolutionary past of Ireland and sort of always shy away from, you know, the reality um, that Ireland is a nation born out of a lot of violence. But that's something, that's something I was rereading The Direction of the Earth by Franz Fanon, um, just in preparation for the podcast as well. And something you notice is that after a, the so-called liberation struggle, I don't see the war of, of independence as any true independence of Ireland, to be honest, that the national bourgeoisie become very... I like mm. the the imperialist oppressor which existed before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the southern bourgeoisie, although small and although all they exist is to manage foreign direct investment, both both American, European, and British, they are still very anglicized and mm-hmm. um, seen through the standardization of the Irish language and that sort of thing. They they ref, they refuse to acknowledge a lot of Ireland's cultural history, and as you said, they attempt to rewrite history. Of Ireland's revolutionary period, which they refuse to acknowledge as revolutionary, yeah, and in, in its first instance, and um, they will hold up figures, um, in public life and through the schooling system, which supported the Free State, including Michael Collins. Michael Collins would have executed trade union leaders, socialists, very much, very much a, a right wing leader that the the Free State government still upholds. And very recently, I think this week, they've announced they will commemorate. Members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was the the colonial force, the, the, clo- the colonial force, yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> through a, through like events of commemoration, sure. celebrating their like work in Ireland, essentially, and and the the what DMP, point? the Dublin Metropolitan Police, who would have been the police force who actually crushed the strikers in the Dublin lockout. So that historical revisionism of the Southern State still exists, 
and even when Palestine is free, I think that will still exist unless until it's socialist. Mm-hmm. That, will, yeah. that will always exist. So you have to. Irish history on the surface isn't taught as this revolutionary concept. Mm-hmm. You really have to dig for it. You have, you have to like learn about these people yeah. and dissect how imperialism has created the Ireland we see today, mm-hmm. and that the national liberation struggle didn't just end in nineteen. I think um, a lot of what you said there is actually I think the best figure in Irish history right now they encapsulate that point and how he's presented would be our organisation's namesake James Conway who yeah. is actually co-opted by a lot of um, like right wing groups uh, in the free state namely the National Party who would always take a dig at us and say Conway was a Catholic so therefore he'd be ashamed that you were communists even though he was expressly a communist and even in more kind of liberal circles down south Conway is just seen as like a, as like a trade unionist which of course he was but that wasn't the full extent of his politics. Yeah. It was the union, the party, and the army. Yeah. Um, that sort of formed the three main polar states revolutionary strategy. The army being the uh, Irish citizens' army. Yeah. But I just go back to what I was saying before. The siege mentality, which existed in unionism at the time, um, was was really exemplified by the time the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association came along. So, as I mentioned before, Catholics were discriminated in terms of housing, and. Because of this, they were disadvantaged in the electoral system. So voting was based off your allocation of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, the Protestant state was going to put Catholics in shittier housing, mm-hmm. um, decide where they were housed, house them in really densely densely populated areas um, in order to gerrymander the vote. Mm-hmm. So best exemplified yeah and and so i'll talk a little bit about that so i'm from there myself here um as Ray said basically catholics were politically marginalized and what essentially was in the part i state i feel like as if i'm comfortable enough to say that now um as well on that um what i probably wouldn't have in the past when i was growing up but i think again that's just to do with how we're even taught this even when we're taught this in kind of school about i don't think we, we really understand how um terrible it was at the time um so Derry city um the local government of Derry. Um, was just was restricted the three areas he had, basically uh the waterside which is in the uh east of the city, and then there was the south side which was predominantly Catholic and that's where most of the um population was as well, um and the north side then, um which was kind of split between, uh Catholics and uh, Protestants at the time. Now there is, there is definitely a much more, densely Catholic. Uh, popular area that it was back then but even at that it was still a majority catholic city so just to kind of give um just a perspective of how deep this ran there was 40 percent protestant and there was so there was 20 um councillor seats on the uh, city council at the time Eighty-eight thousand of them uh voted for um unionist councillors and then 14,000 uh, voted for Catholic or Nationalist or Republican councillors. Protestants basically returned 12 seats to the council, Catholic only 8, free the gerrymandering of those wards. And what this allowed to do was that they essentially controlled the local housing management and allocation. And because, as Roy said, it wasn't one man, one vote, it was a rate pair per vote. And if you were a landlord owning multiple properties, the more properties you had, the more votes you had, and you could do that up to six. You had up to six, so I was nice to them. Nice to count it. <laughs> I'm not allowed to six. So I have a question um, for you. 
you you keep mentioning the uh protestant versus catholic yeah um but i've always got the sense that it's not strictly about the like religion oh, yeah, yeah so is i'm assuming um that the protestant is more like capitalist based where the catholic is more uh, republican or i would i would think socialist i think it's far too simplistic to put it in that terms what i would say about this time is that Protestants were allowed to participate more in economic life, okay. which meant that they just naturally became, you know, more, um, you know, they owned more properties, they were landlords, yeah. they were businesses, but that's not to say that there wasn't thriving, you know, Catholic uh, marketplaces at the time, the named marketplaces in Belfast would be one example, yeah. um, where there was, you know, thriving, you know, given the circumstances, Catholic uh, community, but, you know, it's not something that's, you know, I know a lot of people joke about like Protestant work ethic, but it's not so inherent. They kind of ask their Protestants that they're. You know, that just comes from the capitalist property. Yeah, but yeah. at this time, the state itself was was a part of the state. There was yeah. subjugation of Catholic people. Mm-hmm. Um, with with the conflict and the emergence away from the Orange State and the formation of the new institutionalized sectarian, cross sectarian, nationalist and unionist partner state after nineteen ninety eight. You did see an emergence of a new Catholic middle class, yeah. which which hadn't existed before. So that's I guess just something worth mentioning. Yeah. Because um, there were structural reasons why more Catholics were in class than Protestants at the time. Mm-hmm. Not to not to say that Protestant workers didn't have great victories and have they had great industrial power as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was in the Catholic community there was long term structural unemployment, and it's something you begin to see was one of the downfalls of um, the Orange State because if you have a load of young lads who are angry um, at unionism, angry at the British state and essentially have no economic prospects, they're going to be far quicker to pick up a gun than than if they had had secure And then on the other side, like the Protestants, they have to now justify why it is they have more and they have to tell their kids, you know, why that they live better than their neighbours, right? And it becomes you know, really quickly just to pick up the, or really easy to quickly pick up the capitalist propaganda of like, I have, therefore I earned kind of yeah. mentality. Yeah. yeah, that's why I say the Protestant work class was like, was bought into imperialism mm-hmm. through marginally better housing and jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but just uh, by the day then, uh, as, a, as an analogy, so 14, you know, they simplified the terms here after that thing we're comfortable to do that. 14 and Catholic votes returned eight uh, councillors and 8,000 Protestant votes essentially returned eight seat, 12 seats they had a local council which allowed the um, you know the gerrymandering of the Derry City uh, local council uh, allowed them to allocate housing to you know council housing to um, Protestants he essentially had a situation where where my uh, grandma was from actually the Craigan estate in Derry where you had multiple Catholic housing house, um, families living in one house together with one person voting so that's, that's wild. That's um, and it was a big um, I think it's. It's a big reason why a lot of the civil rights marches ha- I think happened in there, mm-hmm. um, because I think a lot of like, the the effects of the so called troubles, a lot of those negative aspects of it were really exacerbated in there because there was, and it's probably still remains like the most largest like you know Republican nationalist or Catholic. City here and structurally neglected, Stru- completely structurally neglected as a result as well. Does that policy of the uh, one vote basically per property as opposed to per person 
applied to all of England or is it specific to um, Ulster? No, so I, I believe it was specific to Ulster under the Ulster Parliament. Um, so it's very intentional. So it, was very, it, was, it, was, it was very intentional. You know, often, um, you know, in, in Britain you still have parliament, you know, parliamentarian democracy. Um, this was exclusively deals. Um, Connor has a question. Yeah, was there a relation between the civil rights movement in the US and Catholics in Ireland in the 60s trying to address inequality? In yeah, yeah, and I feel like as if around that time as well you had like those uh, student protests in France as well. You know, the world was really um, kind of waking up there. A lot of those um, injustices at the, at the time, this, you know, people in the civil rights movement would tell you, you know, John Hume told you at the time he led it, um, figures such as Bernadette Devil. Devil. I always forget always escapes my mind there will um identified very strongly with with African Americans. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh there's actually a very good speech by Bernadette Devlin, uh, when she was over visiting New York about how she was extremely disappointed that, you know, Irish you know, American Irish people did not identify at all with um the black struggle mm-hmm. um because of what was going on. Uh, here at the at at the time, you can tell how deeply sh- sad she is. She was given the keys to city, and she gave it to the Black Panthers. Yeah, um, I have a book called Beautiful. Black and Green, which mm. is all about the how um, African Americans and the Irish have always gone back and forth with their solidarity. Like Frederick, mm. Frederick Douglass came over, yeah. did a did a lot of work here and like you have mur- murals of them and yeah. I highly recommend that book I'll put it in the show notes mm. but um it's it's really good at just showing like the but like yeah. how international yeah yeah like the liberal analysis will always draw the conclusion between the civil rights movement and the north yeah which was which is widely accepted into the history now and the black civil rights movement but what what happened later in both movements and the north that was crushed by violence and repression by the yeah. state, and what later emerged was violent armed republicanism as a result, to, not only to protect the communities which were under siege for daring to ask for civil rights, but Malcolm X and Hugh Newton and the Black Panther Party emerged from the civil rights movement mm-hmm. as acknowledging the power of and the violence of colonialism um, in the first instance, and violence is necessary for a retaliation to that mm-hmm. and that's something which is not talked about i think um a, a, a very good video that we found a few months ago um showed like uh like a black nationalist uh, pastor actually visit here um and visited a it doesn't say in the video quite what they were but they were either someone either politically or paramilitary uh involved in the republican struggle and it's a very really you know it's it's a very beautiful exchange between them you know discussing and it it, it is it is that concern and about how they identify so strongly uh with each other um as well and um it's very inspiring even even look at the prisoners between the black panther party and the provisional and the ila prisoners at the time they were reading a lot of the same literature yep. they were reading uh france Fanon. they were they were reading mao they were there was, there was red books being passed around hedge blocks and Hugh Newton coaxed the red book, uh, the red book extensively mm-hmm. and revolutionary suicide and a lot of his writings. So there is major parallels yeah. there between both them movements. And Angela Davis has visited yeah, Ireland yeah, yeah. and 
Yeah, Black Panthers are the shit. <laughs> uh, I don't think you can get much better than the Black Panthers in America, really. I agree. <laughs> so did they, did they motivate each other's tactics as well, do you think? Um, in terms of how they engaged militarily? Well, um... I mean, more than that, like uh, community building, obviously. Is like yeah. A, so I think I think the the structures that one of one one of the things that uh, former you know hunger striker Bobby Sands, part of the professional movement, is commended for, um, and a lot of the hunger strikers is when really stressing this need for just you know having a movement just outside of armed struggle about building communities, mm-hmm. about providing, um, you know, outside of the state for communities that the state don't provide but I think ultimately in terms of militarily um, the differences between the British state and the American state necessitated a different approach right um, you know in especially in America with guns you know we don't have guns um, <laughs> take a piss. um you know <laughs> um, well uh, you know so I, I think I think all that stuff kind of has to come to play I don't I can see too many similarities between like a multi tactic between them, um, but in terms of community building outside of it, I would definitely say that's there. Well, the Black Panther Party had the Black Liberation Army, which engaged in the murder of political leaders, um, the assassination of reactionary drug dealers in the community, mm-hmm. and that exists and still does exist yep. in the Republican movement. But whereas the Black Liberation Army only organised sort of underground. The IRA were very much out in the open, open um, were in direct confrontation with the state, whereas the BLA, I don't think, got to that level of, of struggle. You had you had it at certain points when, when the um, where the Republican uh, paramilitaries were so strong that you had you know, open mem- senior IRA members just out in the street talking to the media at some point. Now, there is an accusation that um, particularly a Mr. Martin McGuinness might have been allowed to do that by the state. Um, but it still stands that the, sh- the struggle here, I think, in terms, had a lot more public support um, than like a black kind of insurgency would have had. Um, and a, a, a lot of that would be down to racism, I think, as well. Definitely. But that, that, that struggle and the movement itself between a more militaristic approach and one which leads a, a social movement as a whole and acts of anger as a social movement. Them contradictions between both them movements existed at that time. So I think it was Eldridge Cleaver wanted to push forward with a very militaristic walk around the community, yeah. open carrying. Mm-hmm. Just that intimidating. I, that <laughs> yeah. yeah, that shit's awesome. Because they like stopped arrests, they arrested people yeah. because yeah. they had guns. Yeah. And that's why our gun control laws have taking place because uh, Reagan was scared of the black people with yeah, guns. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the only reason that we have any gun laws yeah. in uh, Illinois or California. Yeah. 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 And that, while Hugh Newton at the same time was saying that is nothing if it doesn't have public support and it doesn't have a social movement leading it, that same contradiction existed amongst the more politically educated prisoners in the prisoner IRA at the time. So a lot of them said, "Well, if we if we pursue if we pursue the armed option, we can't beat the British state in the submission militarily. They're too strong. The Ulsterisation and the passing of power and collusion to loyalist paramilitaries 
make it a very sectarian and bloody conflict between between Irish people sort of disabled the movement in a way and a lot of the prisoners including Tommy McCurney who had been reading a lot of the same literature then formed a group called the League of Communist Republicans in the prison and split at the 1986 Ardash of Sinn Féin so that it's interesting that the same contradictions within the movements exist at different times as well I just have a question. You mentioned Catholic pogroms in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, can you just talk a little bit, of, or are you able to talk a little bit about it? Because um, I'm thinking about, like, as, as Jews, like, we have gone through a lot of pogroms in mm-hmm. our history, and I was... And I'm starting to realize there's a lot of similarities between Catholic and Jewish um, yeah. so hatred. They, they were something which were continuous amongst the existence of the Orange State. So when the Orange State and the Protestant Parliament, the Protestant people and Protestant authority had to assert itself over, over nationalism, over that threat, that, that threat that unionism is, has so ingrained into its psyche, it has to assert itself through violence. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why pogroms against Catholic people were, were mainly in the nineteen twenties after the formation of the state mm-hmm. to like solidify the monopoly and violence that the state would have, and then in the late sixties once, once nationalists, once liberal unionists, and once um, people involved in the civil rights association and mainly working class Catholic mm-hmm. people, in to bear their lot. Again, the state had to like crack the whip. Would the state come in and like just go in and kill a bunch of Catholics? Or? So at the time, the RUC, exclusively Protestant mm-hmm. police force, was the most armed police force in Europe. Mm-hmm. What would have happened is loyalist mobs would have come into Catholic areas, as you've seen yourself today when you've been in West Belfast. Mm-hmm. There's still gates which exist between yeah. the Triangle and the Falls, and they're yeah. very, they're very, they're very close, and you can you can walk in between them during the day yeah. and stuff. What would have happened is loyalist mobs. Um, in retaliation for civil rights marches, in retaliation for, or just blind sectarianism, mm-hmm. would have marched into these Catholic areas along the sectarian lines, the division mm-hmm. essentially, um, guarded by armed members of the B Specials or mm-hmm. off duty police officers, mm-hmm. and they would have shot up the street. There's, and burnt down houses mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. So there is, re- there is recorded. It's recorded in history and no, it's recorded in history that there's like brown machine gun bullet holes mm-hmm. on the houses. Under for what reason do you need to show up people's houses with a fucking machine gun? Mm-hmm. Um, people were burnt out of their houses, yeah. and this is one of the main reasons why the split happens in the official IRA at the time, because a more younger, more vibrant section more exclusively from the north as well that section of the official ira who refused or were hesitant to defend these areas they said well no we have to defend um, the nationalist people from the state itself we have we have to arm our own people mm-hmm. and we have to create a force which can which can at least try and fight back because people were dying and people were having to move move out of the city, move away from their families, mm-hmm. the whole social fabric and national society was being ripped apart. And that's that's why the provisional IRA began to sort of assert itself mm-hmm. as as the main force of republicanism because it was very much 
defend our communities and then that later morphed into attacking the state itself and trying to smash the orange state which had, which had subjugated the people in the first instance. Yeah, so, I feel like as Jews in America we're starting to realize how important our armed struggle is and how important it is to protect our communities but we're up against this nationalist um, not not good nationalists like uh, <laughs> Jewish Jewish Defense League these right wing Jewish groups are who are all in support of Israel and um, but as leftist Jews we need to understand like we need to have armed struggle we need to protect our communities because a lot of us are really scared and a lot of us are moving away yeah. and I understand like our all of these struggles are interconnected and um, just hearing of about the Catholic pogroms and uh, just seeing the walls and Belfast, it really drives home like mm -hmm. this shit is still very, very real. And even now, like, yeah, it's 2020 now, but we're still dealing with a shit ton of anti-Semitism. We're dealing with sectarianism um, and the shit that's going in Iran. And what's happening to Palestinians, like, all of this shit is connected and we need to be talking about this stuff a lot yeah. more. And we need to arm ourselves, but we also need to arm ourselves with theory. We can't just mm -hmm. blindly go in with guns and not have marks to back us up. Yeah, yeah. I think what's also emblematic of what Roy was saying between the split between the Northern Republicans and the Dublin-based officials is that even the official Republicans in the North who stayed with the official movement at the time because they believed they had a better analysis because they were more expressly Marxist. Yeah. Um um still were the faction within the official movement that were far more uh you know willing to engage in our struggle and promoted it. Uh, namely uh Joe uh McCann, um who some Republicans to this day allege that when he was killed in a skirmish between um himself and a British um, army troopers that he was deliberately left underarmed by the official movement and, and, and unable to defend himself and resulted in his death. Now I'm not quite sure how accurate that would be but a lot of people would still say that. Um, so I think it's very telling that like the Northern experience definitely and still to this day shapes um, shapes you know there is a difference between the like, even Republicanism in the North than there is down south. Mm -hmm. In the free state. Yeah, is, is there a history of like Jewish militancy or Jewish armed resistance? Oh, yeah. That's something I am um, completely not. World War II? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean within, within the American, American um, context. There's Jewish Defense League, which is very reactionary. Okay. And I feel like we talked about this on the podcast, but as Jews, especially Zionist Jews, just fall back on, oh, we have Israel to escape yeah, okay. to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not what we're a part of. We're anti-Zionist Jews. We believe wherever we are, that's our home. Uh, there's a Yiddish term called doikat, which means hereness. That's where we yeah. are. And it's something that's becoming more and more real for us as anti-Semitism attacks like rise and rise. Like We have to arm ourselves or else we're going to we're gonna get killed. Yep. Um, but especially there's the Bun movement that believed in Joy Gat and they also were somewhat militant in armed struggle. Um, 
but a lot of them went to Israel after World War Two, which is really unfortunate. And you mentioned that, and it's like it's something that it's something that is interesting, specifically about the provisional area itself, and it's raised the prominence. Like it launched an armed campaign of of little to no community support, mm-hmm. whereas every other Republican organization before it and every Republican organization since has based their armed struggle off a strong base of support in the community. Mm-hmm. And I think that only serves to highlight the the complete need and the complete contradiction in society at the time yeah. that, that a militaristic um, and imperialist force could, could emerge and, and gain such large swathes of, of the North. Yeah, um, I think what's really happening is we're having a lot of Jewish anti-fascist groups come forward. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Jewish anarchists, but they are really good at anti-fascist work. And so what we're all trying to do is convince the synagogues and the temples and the rabbis do not rely on on, uh, police officers for um, armed support. You need to reach out to Jewish anti-fascist groups who will stand vigil when you're having uh, Shabbat services mm-hmm. or something like that. Because when you, in, in the States, when you have uh, uniformed police officers, that's just really... There's lots of Jews of color who don't want to go into a temple with a fucking cop mm-hmm. watching yeah. Yeah. over and like looking through all your bags. Like, I go to High Holy day services and there's fucking pigs walking around with um rifles i'm like this is not a place for me to practice my religion like i don't want pigs watching me and how far or if to any degree have jewish americans been incorporated into the state apparatus in terms of the police and the army um a lot i would say I feel weird because I'm the only Jew here. <laughs> um, I feel like they have really tried to assimilate as much as possible to be as American as possible. Okay. And like with the whole Israel shit, like anti-defamation leagues is a huge mm. Jewish organization that says they fight against like hatred and shit. But when it comes to Palestinians, well, they deserve it basically. Yeah, right. So... ADL sends over our pigs to Israel and train with IDF, and IDF learns from our pigs on how to uh, suppress protests. And I see that shit all the time because in St. Louis we have police officers that threaten to tear gas the synagogue on Shabbat services. Um, yeah, but they're never they're never fully allowed to integrate into American society. Jews, yeah. Like, yeah. If you're openly Jewish, no way. Yeah. But if you don't talk about being Jewish. You don't wear any religious garb. Yeah. You don't wear stars of David. Nothing. Then you might be. You don't okay. express it in any way, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely suppressed. I think. I think one thing that we can definitely uh, relate to that in our experience here, um, definitely with the police. Um, so sectarian policing still exists. It's not something that went away. If you look at the structures of the now dubbed uh, police service of Northern Ireland, which used to be the Royal Ulster Constabulary, mm-hmm. which is the colonial uh, force here. Um, it structurally remains the exact same as it did during the so-called Troubles. All of the special branch intelligence, counter-terrorism uh, units, um, their tactics are still the same. Um, internment still exists here. 
um, all those structures still exist. They're just like internment camps. Yeah, well, they internment is in um, people are arrested before trial, but you know oh. there isn't specific. You know there, uh, it, it would be called McGabby Prison. Um, I, I wouldn't call it an internment camp, but internment still exists in the fact that republicanism is still criminalized, mm -hmm. and um, people are still put in jail without trial for mm -hmm. being you know alleged, you know terrorists. Do you, um, do you know if the British troops or police here have trained with the IDF, or if they if they go with go over to Palestine? I wouldn't know what, to be honest. Um, I would say I would say that. Most of the tactics that were employed in the north were learned in like Kenya, yeah, and other British Cyprus. colonies in oh, Cyprus. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be beyond the scope of beyond imagination the that they do share the same the same sort of like political yeah. education. Mm -hmm. I know like, the British military itself does, but I wasn't sure if they yeah, should hear like about how to police here. How to stop. I just thought counterinsurgency essentially. I yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't Yeah, I went of course, course, of course. It makes it makes so much logical sense. Um but I kinda of bring back what I was saying there about the about the police. So the police was he, he was formally restylized, and that's the word that's used in the legislation in two thousand and one. The legislation said that the Royal Ulster Constabulary will still remain, but for operational uses will be stylized as the police service of Northern Ireland. So yeah. you have a lot of people in mainstream Republican parties. Um if you actually sit on uh, policing boards where their job is to actually encourage you know people in republican areas to join the police because that's their job it still remains with functionally the same and still um is used they intimidate um republicans yeah so the the tsg which is the tactical support group or the anti-terrorist you know however you want to frame it c3 and i think it, i believe it's called the c3 mm -hmm. intelligence unit yeah which because of so-called peace um after the ceasefire in 1998, the British state and its army had to transfer resources and um, education essentially to the colonial force, back to the colonial force as the, the main, as the main oppressor, the main colonial oppressor on the island as yeah. opposed to the army. So them units are overwhelmingly Protestant still, they're over 8% uh, Protestant. I believe it is, it's 97% of the C three group are former RUC yeah. and it's seventy nine percent Protestant. There was an attempt they make the PSNA fifty fifty Catholic yeah. Protestant, but that's been but that's been since abandoned. Yeah, and it's it's notable, especially where I grew up, that the PSNA do a lot of outreach programs and nationalist and call strong call, areas. You know, so called community policing, but it's 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 an infiltration oh, yeah. tactic, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's it's been it's been found that what the police are doing is is not only trying to get young people in Republican and nationalist communities to tag as police types, mm. um, but it's also an indoctrination in itself through social work. So it, that's that's about a slang here. Tout here means an informer, data yeah. security service. Yeah. It doesn't mean someone selling tickets. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's something someone that I always forget. Uh, but I remember that. They're selling something. <laughs> They're selling their own people, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to get back on track? I feel like... <laughs> I love talking about the cops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we all agree that the pigs suck. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so kind of off, off, completely off topic question. Uh, why why do we not see more women in the like Republican organizations, or, uh, just or, or at least? Mm. Well, yeah, well yeah, I, I mean, think, I mean specifically yeah, here, because I, I mean, we it's probably different in different areas. I would imagine. Maybe it's the same. I don't but know. But they have a lot of murals for. Yeah, so I, I think that um, I think that that's just a problem that's replicated just when men are in charge anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I would say is that you know you actually had um, in the R- in the RA you know there, you know and in Republicans there is like you know very um, prominent like woman figures like Candace Margaret and like um, you have uh, like a like an, an independent woman's IRA coming the band um, that actually at a point was tried to be kind of subjugated by the men in the professional area and they've effectively uh, resisted that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there is, <laughs> there, there is a history of women provisionals. Yeah, 100%. Um, like Marion DeBurka, Marion Price, Martina Anderson and women who would have been in yeah. the IRA and who served time in England imprisoned for bombing the bombing campaign. They tried to go on their own hunger strike and many of them were force fed. For, for months on end, mm-hmm. um, but I I don't know. I think I think one of the problems is still the influence of the Catholic Church on the nationalist population at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and and, 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 to, and to a degree the provisional movement as well. Yeah, and to a degree figures in the provisional movement. Yeah. but um, the well, their citizens army was open to men and women, and that was majorly women officers mm-hmm. for the most part as well. Cool. So what about like with with who you grew up with and like right now, um, is there is there any difference in like lifestyle growing up between men and women that you would see maybe keep them or like guide them in a di- different direction from like radical movement or? So during the troubles, I can I can tell a lot about Derry in this probably. Um, Derry used to be like a really industrialized city with um, it was basically kind of made for sure factories. If you were a woman, uh, and my mother done this as well, by the time you were 16, you left school, you went straight into the, sh- into the shirt factories. While if you were a man, you ended up on on the dole, career criminal, or in the uh, Republican movement. Um, so I think that I'm not quite sure if that would have been replicated over the place, but in Derry, um, that's probably why a lot of the a lot of the uh, volunteers ended up being more predominantly more men than women, but that's not to say that there wasn't. Um, again, you know, you had Kuma in the band. You had, you know, you know, women are definitely celebrated, and we'll talk a bit a bit more about that in the murals later on within the Republican movement. Maria Farrell is another strong Republican woman at the time in the East, a young young woman as well. But I think in the in our current stage of the Irish struggle, I think. Um, I think women's lives in the north are highly politicized um, yeah. through the Victorian abortion legislation we have here up until very recently. Up until like a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and and th- that was only brought about because of a deadlock yeah. um, in um, the negotiations here to get the to get the coalition storm of the arrangement up and going again, where uh, Westminster essentially had to push it free. Yeah. And again, um, you know the carnival of reaction that Conley talked about, um, isn't you know wasn't just between Catholic 
in Protestant, it was to do with you know men and women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even you know, like the DUP, for example, up here, um, still, um, you know, if they had it, if they had the power to do it, they would recriminalize abortion. And they, they, use, they use what's called in the Northern um, Assembly, Stormont, they used what's known as the Petition of Concern. So if you had over 30 seats in the in the Parliament, you could essentially veto any legislation mm-hmm. um, which passed through, and they used it extensively to um, stop uh, equal marriage, equal marriage yeah. to stop same-sex marriage, same-sex marriage to stop, um, and to stop abortion legislation. And Irish language act. And the Irish language used it to stop the Irish language act as well. So you mentioned a change in the abortion legislation. What was that change? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a consultation process for the abortion legislation, which is ongoing, by a group called Alliance for Choice, which was sort of the main group which spearheaded the abortion, the fight for reproductive rights in the north. Um. So I know in England it was you can get an abortion up to twenty four weeks. You get a termination up to. Under the legislation that Westminster passed, a lot of Irish people in the North were under the impression that it would be on par with the English legislation, but now there seems to be an ongoing consultation process by which that could be reduced. I believe I believe they're talking 12 weeks. Yeah. That's what's being... So even, even though you're under British rule, you still get, like... More shit policies than the British. Yeah, did. so you get you get all the all the joys of being occupied, and then <laughs> no, none, none of none of the benefits of none none of none of the benefits of like uh, sort of like British liberalism. No, you know what I mean. So like what what appeals what appeals to loyalists then? I don't understand. So, it's I think it's a conflation. This um, it's it's I think it's a weird term loyalist um because I think it kind of denotes that. You know, loyalists will always just be you know blindly follow what the British do. You know, they so our our cab driver described it as being more British than the British are. Basically, yeah. Well, basically, Car- Carson, the great unionist leader, said himself that people from Ulster are British in a different way. Yeah, that British people Britain are. But I I I'm not following the term loyalist leader. Um, yeah, I, it it has a lot of like classist like yeah. if you're if if you're a middle class, and you are in favor of the union here between um, the North and Britain, you're a unionist. If you're yeah. working class, you're a loyalist. Yeah, loyalism is seen as this very narrow-minded, um, violent ideology, which which, it's, which it can be mm-hmm. and has been in the past, but it's, that's not across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, so. As I said, the Special Powers Act and later internment enacted by the British state meant that anyone suspected of being the IRA, anyone who was an active Republican, Catholics walking down the street could be lifted and thrown in jail for suspicion of such activities. I mean, they weren't subject to trial. Um, they had no right to a lawyer or defence or anything like that. You were put into the internment camps in Longcash, again, the colonial prison. Um, and initially, Republicans were allowed, and loyalists were allowed to freely organise in the prison. So they had, they had their, the OCs ran their camps and they had, they had education sessions and they would have done their own exercise and that sort of thing. But these prisoners began to be denied political status in 1976, brought in by a Labour government, mind you. So Irish people and Irish Republicans are very, very acutely aware of the role that the Labour Party plays, not only in class collaboration in Britain, but in propagating British imperialism, whether it's under a guise of the working class or not. Mm -hmm. 
so they removed they removed special status for prisoners, mainly, mainly Republican prisoners. I mean, a lot of the loyalist organisations at this time were still seen as legal. So political status was special status was removed for these political prisoners, and the British government pursued pursued a policy of viewing these Republicans as nothing more than paid criminals. So a process of criminalisation essentially emerged. And this is what would have led to initially the blanket protest, in which the first blanket man was Kieran Nugent. Um, they refused to wear the prison clothing um, and they just wore the blankets. And that went on, that went on for a very long time. That went on even during the hunger strikes. Mm -hmm. So that went on for a few years. The blanket protest then would have escalated into what was called a no wash protest or a dirty protest in which the Republican prisoners refused to what was known as slob out. They refused to have their waste removed from the prison. They began to smear their own excrement, vomit on the walls. And I think, again, to draw another parallel, it's something Hugh Newton talks about. He deliberately put himself in solitary confinement mm -hmm. and refused, refused any reading materials mm -hmm. when he went into prison to prove that, to quote Bobby Sands, there's nothing in the whole British arsenal which can break the Irish spirit. And that eventually escalated into the first hunger strike, which was in 1980, led by the commander of the D Company, which was on the Falls Road of the Provisional IRA, um, led by a man called Brendan Hughes, or Dirty Hughes, and Tommy McCurney, who would later go on to join, formed the League of Communist Republicans, and is now an independent Republican socialist. He would have been on that initial hunger strike. One of the mistakes they did make um, and this was later noted by Bobby Sands, was that they all went on hunger strike at the same time. Mm. Whereas by the time the 1981 hunger strike came about, they began to stagger the hunger strikes to prolong, to prolong the campaign. So before, just before when the, when the health of the hunger strikers in the 1980 strike began to really deteriorate, they were promised the reforms by the British state. They came off the hunger strike and the reforms were never implemented. Mm -hmm. So you had men who'd starved for 40, 50 days really bitter about the hunger strike and, and felt really cheated, um, as you would. Yeah. So by the time 1981 came along, Bobby Sands had become the OC in the prison. It was no longer Brent Hughes. And Bobby Sands said, we need to do another hunger strike. But here's where, here's where the distinction between the prisoners in the area at the time and the movement on the outside, then differences are drawn because you, you don't really have any say in what happens on the outside if you're in prison because, number one, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to dictate what's happening on the outside, that can alienate volunteers. And there, there's good reason why there's that separation, why prisoners don't have, have much of a say. But Bobby Sands essentially pushed the Army Council at the time to support another hunger strike. But he said, we're going to stagger out this time. So Bobby Sands was the first to go on the hunger strike. Lasted 66 days. Mm -hmm. And eventually died. Republicans would see that as a murder at the hands of British state, and rightly so. Mm -hmm. And this sort of, again, exposed the inhumanity of imperialism which existed in Ireland at the time. Because they, they had, I think, I think imperialism in Britain at the time had tried to reposition itself um, through criminalisation and they replaced internment actually in the late 70s which, with a diplomatic court system, so you had to prove your innocence instead of your guilt being proved. That was like the opposite way around, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it only took only took the word of a 
army officer only took the word of a policeman to put you inside. So in terms term it still exist, existed, um, but on the surface it was wrapped up in this, oh, they are going to court, they are facing trial, sort of thing. And through the 1981 hunger strike, when Francis Hughes went on hunger strike, when Patsy O'Hara eventually died, it's important to note that there were professional IRA and INLA members, the armed wing of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, both on strike. And this sort of created a new social movement which had never which hadn't been seen since the civil rights movement. So the campaign had been very militaristic throughout the seventies. This created a new social movement by which the IRA could mobilise the public and agitate for more social demands, create a broader community wide movement. I mean, a hundred thousand people showed up for the funeral of Bobby Sands. I heard I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard that um American dock workers, Irish American dock workers refused to mm. allow British ships into harbours in America mm. um the day of his funeral as well. And along with the death of the hunger strikers, you inspired another generation of Republicans. But you also seen a core of a lot of the most politically educated and class conscious members of the Republican movement uh, die. Yeah. So there was the opportunity to create a, a more broad-based social movement at the time. But Sinn Féin decided not to pursue that. Because what was left of the leadership of the movement was those who had either left prison and never received political education or weren't military men and had been party members of Sinn Féin. Mm-hmm. So that's what was left um, of the members at the time. So they moved to this sort of armally and ballot box strategy where they would use the cutting edge of the IRA violence to smash the state while also aiming to get elected onto, well, on abstentionist ticket, essentially. And Bobby Sands got elected, so mm-hmm. he only got elected as a member of the British Parliament for Fermanagh and South Tyrone as well. So, and, and they, they say that as well, it's not as if that's a safe Republican seat. It's flipped, it's flipped back and forth yeah. as well, well. I would say it's a, it's a strong national seat now. It is now, well it is now partly because of that. Uh, but, he, but even that, a few years ago the UUP got back in yeah. and they had a seat. So it wasn't like as if they put him in West Belfast. Yeah. You know, they did, you know, it, it, that, that was never, like, yeah. you know, an, any any an, an easy one, which I think makes that fight very much more impressive. There was a by-election at the time yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to, to do that. <laughs> but, um, as I say, they already pursued this policy of arm light and battle box. And once, so if you if you engage in armed struggle, um, the British state in retaliation are going to say, well, and that's been the tactic of the British state since day one was, we're going to paralyze you militarily and be you into submission militar- militarily and you're going to agree to partial government. That was mm-hmm. British strategy from 1972. Their strategy had very much been, we're going to make Ireland ungovernable and we're going to inflict so many casualties that we'll send so many British soldiers home in boxes that the state will withdraw like what happened in Vietnam. But they already didn't have the military capacity to do that. So this is why they pursued an arm light and ballot box strategy and later they, as I mentioned before, ostracization and the use of loyalist paranoia through collusion to sort of disable the, the military wing of Sinn Féin, the IRA. As that happened, they were essentially boxed into a corner, and that was the parliamentary corner, mm-hmm. um, was the only way they could agitate. They made a distinct turn to liberalism, and a move to partial. So much, much the dismay of a lot of the soldiers volunteers at the time mm-hmm. and a lot of the old school Republicans uh, who had been prominent in the early provisional movement, such as like Rory O'Brien, who went on to form Republican Sinn Féin, 
after the 1986 Ardesh, Sinn Féin or National Congress or National League, when Sinn Féin decided that they would take their seats in Leinster House if, if elected, which would be in the Southern Parliament. And for Republicans, this is still, I think, a very contentious issue because to take your seat in the Southern Parliament means you have to recognise the partition of Ireland and you have to, mm. you have, you have to recognise that Ireland isn't one republic or that, that sort of ideal. Which, which I think is a, was a hard pill to swallow for a lot of Sinn Féin members at the time, considering in the All-Ireland election of 1918 for the first oil, Sinn Féin won the vast, vast majority of the seats. 72% of the vote. 72% of the vote. So it was, a hard, it was a hard pill to swallow for a lot of the movement at the time. And as the military factions or the, the further left or communist factions sort of like broke away, started to not become politically involved or moved into other organisations or formed their own organisations, what was sort of left was the, those who supported the electoral strategy. Um, and what eventually happened was was Sinn Féin, which had been a community-led organisation and a very, a very working-class organisation up until that time, moved, moved to the centre to, to, to gain mm. power and abandoned any notions of socialism. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when they went into Parliament, when they went into coalition with the DUP, it's noted that their economic advisors are very much of the Chicago School yeah. and neoliberal economics. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the British strategy from day one. I believe um, McCurney talks about that a lot, doesn't he? Yeah. McCur- I'll put it in the book, one of the books. Um, okay. It's a great book, actually. So, yeah. And um, another British strategy to try and pacify Sinn Féin and pacify the area would have been, and it's straight out of the colonial handbook, and Franz Fanon talks about it quite a lot. And it's something you see in other colonies as well, is supporting the moderates to undermine the working class base or yeah. the, the revolutionary base. So in the north, that would have that would have manifested itself through the British support for Sinn or for for Sinn Féin for for the SDLP, SDLP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. for the Social Democratic Labour Party, Liberal Party. <laughs> well, um, and Labour Party, and that still exists today to a, to a degree. I would say you can see that with um, Hamas. That's the more centrist party of Palestine mm-hmm. when you have like a party like the PFLP, yeah. uh, who is Marxist-Leninist. Uh, I, you can definitely take that example mm-hmm. and place it on other colonized peoples. Mm-hmm. And another reason why structurally Sinn Féin weren't a socialist party and why, why they, they, can't, they can't draw the exact same parallels as you do between the Viet Cong, for mm-hmm. example, and Sinn Féin is because the party didn't control the gun, like what mm-hmm. I mean, the which is the, the synthesis in, in Marxist Leninist thought. Yeah. Um, very much the army controlled the party. But even in the Marxist Leninist organizations in the INLA, that was still pretty much the case in terms of the INLA Army Council having more power than the uh, IRSP as well. There are very other very interesting organizations to look at and have a very rich history as well. Um, in terms of like actual resistance against the state, I think the personal IRA were more yeah. Um, history history of the Workers Party is a very good book on that. The Lost Revolution. The, the Lost Revolution. Um, history of the Workers Party. A massive book. The COM are mentioned. Uh, yeah, can I ask? Because you talked about uh, colonial technique is to support the moderates, and you had this kind of move towards electoralism in I think it was the seventies. Well, the late eighties or late eighties. Sorry. Do you know how close you came to like having a united island or to having 
Britain to pull out of Ireland? Because I remember seeing that I think one of the heads officers in yeah. the British Army, yeah. like in an official document, he mentions mm. to I think a cabinet minister yeah. in the UK government that his advice was basically like, we need to get out of here. We should yeah. pull out and just let Ireland be yeah. united. But, yeah. And obviously the cabinet minister just like did not let this escape. I think what's um not talked about a lot of this, um is that there's sort of like I've I've seen this this thought emerge a lot more in recent times, that the 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 development of um Britain as a police state and the the sort of like technology that progressed with espionage is also one of the factors that the um IRA had you know felt like as if they had to come to a compromise. What what was your thoughts being that? I know that a lot of people have said that. Um, um I, I to be honest, I I can't give a solid answer on how close we were. Definitely definitely one factor and that is true, that mm. that, that did happen. And it would have been my reply to your question. But I think mm. if you all look deeper into it, um at that time I think it was the Conservatives who were in power. And you have to think of Margaret Thatcher at so, that time. So hard like The War in the Falklands, mm. um very much um direct criminals, we will not buy to them. To, to recognise Irish unity and the, the British withdrawal would have been an embarrassing defeat for such a strong uh, political leader. And another factor that comes into it again would be the retaliation of loyalism and unionism itself. Who were very much um, intertwined with the security forces. Um, yeah, but like when they tried to set up power share initially in 1974 through an agreement known as the Sunnydale Agreement, that would have worked. It would have worked had it not been for what was known or dubbed as the Ulster Workers' Council strike, it wasn't a strike at all. It was an Ian Paisley-led, um, Paisley attempt at collapsing the Sunday Deal Agreement and collapsing power share in 1974 through intimidating workers, trying to go to their jobs, saying you're not going to work because this will be a victory for the IRA and all that sort of thing. So I think that that's another, that's a political reason why the British state can never allow itself to do that because of the backlash yeah. that they would have faced from the loyalism. It was a really nice quote I saw in that um, article oh, you shared with me uh, last night. The the one that you had on paper, which is from Jennifer McCann, talking about about being a political prisoner. Um, basically, oh. she was sentenced for twenty years for shooting an IUC man, and she says, "I'm a Republican prisoner of war, and at the moment, my comrade Bobby Sands is on hunger strike to defend my rights as a political prisoner." I thought it was really sick. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I read The Brothers on the Walls, which is... It's uh, fantastic. A lot of my notes come from Yeah, that. International yeah. Solidarity and Irish Political Murals, which I'll include uh, in the show notes. I love that quote of, I want no American aid if it comes across the Atlantic stained in Negro blood. Yeah, that's amazing. That's you said that? Uh, Daniel O'Connell. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, the Liberator. <laughs> <laughs> he refused. When when Daniel called Third Ireland, he refused to speak Irish. Oh, well, fuck that. Yeah, he calmly, calmly sarcastically dubs him the Liberator. Yeah. yeah. In his writings. Um, and there's a great chapter in Labour and Irish history on like, Daniel Connell's role and, mm-hmm. um, and again how the British state sort of incorporates these so-called like, radical Irish figures when mm-hmm. they're nothing of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone does anything specifically about like Palestinian and Irish, like things that people from either country have done in support of each other. I read something about um, Leila Khaled was... Whoop whoop! Yeah. Yeah, Critical was, support. 
Yeah, she was refused to enter Ireland to speak at. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce Irish, but it's, in English it's the West Belfast Festival. Oh, Phil and Fool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, she was. What a night. I love people that. Fuck out. Yeah, and that's like another thing. It's like Sinn Fein are so became so reliant on like British state funding, mm-hmm. another tactic of the British security forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like while these festivals would have been like very revolutionary mm-hmm. and very world class and very community based, independent of any state funding, yeah. in the seventies like they they've been morphed into this like very state funded community. That festival. that festival night is just like it big rave like that okay, like, shift. <laughs> like, yeah, so this that's was in two thousand five, so I imagine it's not. Uh, quite yeah, like like, like I mean that, that's just that's just like every every console gear there like yeah. everyone's. But that's that's the that's like the role of Sinn Féin in their national politics today. They still play up to the idea of like the men and women of violence almost yeah. internationally. Like they attend the Fête de l'Humanité, which is the French communist yeah. festival and sell t-shirts and badges of Armalite. It's like, none of your members have held Armalite since 1994 at least. <laughs> yeah, according, well, according, according to MF5, the Armalite Council still controls Sinn Féin, but I do not believe that. Like, for the <laughs> according to MI5, um, before the last um, Stormworth election, so the last yeah. local election, there was, a, there was an article in Belfast Telegraph that was reporting that the MI5 still claimed that the, that the provisional IRA Army Council still controls Sinn Féin, but I think that... But I think that was just a scare tactic to get people not to vote for you. Yeah. Of course. So like Sinn Féin had the Sandinistas at their latest Ardèche in Derry this year. Yeah. Oh, the Sandinistas now are just not very good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we we were invited to go meet with them as well mm-hmm. um, at an event, but the Sandinistas were there for the Sinn Féin Ardèche. So on one hand, you're you're inviting these former international rebels. As well, as well. On the other hand, but Sinn Féin is also former. On, on, on the other hand, you're using the supposed reunification of Germany as an economic model for the reunification of Ireland. You're praising, uh, you're praising the fall, the fall of the Berlin Wall, right, right, right in front of the like Cuban ambassador to Ireland as well. By yeah. the way, so I want to start off um, just by uh, a quote here and a thank you for um, kind of leading the way on that, um, especially with the um, the hunger strikers there. Um, so it's a quote here by um, a South American socialist. Jose Carlos Maratelli that says that the nationalism of European nations uh, possesses imperialist ends. It is reactionary and anti-socialist, but the nationalism of the colonized peoples has a totally different origin and impulse. In these peoples, nationalism is revolutionary and therefore ends with um, socialism. And I think that that's true to a large extent to the uh, nationalism in Ireland, um, across the board. After the hunger strike, um, you know, Irish um, republicanism and nationalism has a long history of solidarity and affinity with uh, liberation movements, but I think it really kicks in the high gear then because beforehand, and Bill Rolston talks about this as well, um, he's a lecturer at the university that I used to go to, also university, about how, especially after the troubles, that kind of international solidarity was basically based on opportunity. It's basically just based on getting our boys trained you know, it, it's not that there wasn't, you know, some sort of meaningful meaning authority, but it wasn't really expressed in the official um, official leadership. Of, and I mean that as in, like, the leadership of the provisional IRA and all Republican organisations, not the official um, IRA leadership. So much so that Roy O'Brady, who, as Roy said earlier, went to form Republican Sinn Féin in 86, 
1971, he said, quote, we have no need for your Che Guevara's and Ho Chi Minh's. So, you know, I'm not going to be uncritical. What? Yeah. What? Exactly. Yeah. We stand Ho Chi Minh this <laughs> podcast. So and well. Che. Yeah. But Ho Chi Minh is one of my favorites. So, Brody, cancelled. <laughs> like us. <laughs> Sorry, that, that really pissed me. Yeah, uh, no, it is, it is, it Nobody is. Nobody shits on my man. Yeah, it, it is, it is outrageous. Like, um, everybody needs more hoochies. Yeah, so I'm, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be completely, um, you know, uncritical about this. It would be pretty anti-Marxist to do this, and a lot of Irish nationalism found itself very confused a lot, um, when when it when it came the um, you know, our liberation struggle. So, you actually end up having like. A lot of like, uh, like even like Zionist paramilitaries like identifying with like Michael Collins, for example, mm-hmm. which which is wouldn't be any surprise to us, I don't think, but would but probably would be a surprise to um kind of like like liberal like Irish Republicans, on that, and a lot of uh, Irish nationalism, especially um in the forties and fifties, kind of characterized itself on you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's an often repeated Republican slogan which I don't particularly like to be honest. Um, that says England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Now, I think in, in certain instances, you know, opportunity is by no necessarily a bad thing in this, um, but by itself, um, it was pretty not really internationalist. So you even have, and this is probably the most regrettable part, I think, of um, Irish Republicanism's history. Eamon de Valera, um, who became, um, you know, one, one of the leaders in 1916, he became very reactionary and found that the you know, just completely Tory right wing uh Fianna Fáil, who arrogantly still calls mm. itself the Republican Party, um, as its slogan, um, expressed condolences on the determination on um the death of Hitler. Yeah, um, I remember he was, hearing about that. Yeah, because was he, he was, also the one who asked for guns from Nazi Germany? Correct. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I- Ireland has asked for guns. From Germany mm-hmm. for a long ass time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's been multiple well, occasions where they've tried to send guns. Yeah. But this was Nazis. Yeah. And as a Jew yeah. and a Jewish podcast, we got issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity is, is repeated through history and yeah. Irish Republicanism. Mm-hmm. So, like, Arthur Griffiths, Griffiths, who, like, formed Sinn Fein, originally is like original um, political. Political manifesto was essentially we should swap the the, the British, the British monarchy. for an Irish monarchy. No, for, for a German yeah. monarchy. Yeah, but like yeah. obviously yeah. leaving for yeah. Ireland. Yeah, but on, under the guise of this was liberated Ireland. Yeah, and yeah, and, and even and even and even at that, you know, you have um, during the nineteen, you know, during the late seventeen hundreds, you know, it, as much as I do, you know, really admire like you know the, the United Irishman and um, you know, Wolf Tone, um, they kind of always looked outward. They, you know, France. They come and like liberate us. Yeah. And you know everything like that. Now, um, I think that actually comes down to like the mind of like the colonized that we don't have the confidence to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As well, you know, at you know at the same time, it's something that definitely um you know Hunan would have read a lot about as well, and I think it definitely applies to um us as Irish people. But again, um, as Ray said, you know, this isn't to say that there wasn't um a lot of meaningful kind of cooperation, uh, particularly on a very military level because this is how it would express itself in the age of internationalism mainly for opportunity so the the, the professional IRA and the PLO engaged in joint training camps level in the 1970s there was joint ground run exercises um, in Cyprus 
um, that was actually compromised by Israeli and British intelligence, with uh, IRA members arrested as well. The PLO gave a statement um, and supported uh, an INLA bombing of a NATO radar station at Cork. And INLA members caught on a Greek Turkish border smuggling guns, weapons from Lebanon, trying to get into um, Palestine in the late um, 1970s as well. So it's not to say that, um, and particularly on the INLA side, that, you know, there would have been that more ideological um, sort of affinity with the Palestinian struggle. But again, it isn't really repeated until, um, sorry, that kind of affinity isn't really repeated from us, the other nations, until the 80s with probably the, the exception of the Basque country the professional area was always very and was was, was, was always very warm um, they um, kind of give and really identify with the with the ETA um, we actually traded guns and explosives for sure did they did a IRA or provisional RA, IRA ever work with um, like PFLP not not out of my knowledge. Layla Khalid or anything like that. Out of my knowledge. But again, um, you know, a lot of like a, a lot a lot of stuff are still found out as well. Mm-hmm. Again, um I believe kinda once kinda the um the you know, the hunger strike does happen in the eighties, um, you know, you do kinda move away from just this solidarity based based on like military cooperation. And this is probably most beautifully expressed in the murals. Um yeah. basically up until the eighties. And it's something that come to shock to me and Rory, especially, is that republicanism, and you know, it does make sense that it wasn't expressed at all anywhere. You know, you, you didn't have like these Republican murals beforehand. Um, you know, you didn't see any Irish flags or Palestinian flags out in the street. Um, that we would just see and then well, for me anyway, and in the places that we would grow up. It isn't until the murals for the hunger strikers in nineteen eighty one that uh, really charges this mm. um, and after the um, hunger strike ha- um, ends uh, these murals are still continued but they take um, they expand more in the history like Irish mythology um, even like sports people like everyday life it's kind of stuff as well like um, my favorite all-time mural it's probably not the most artistically impressive and it, you know it doesn't it's not there anymore because a feature of this is that they always change as well they always change they meet you know the political struggles of the time or you know different political developments was a mural in Chantalu, which is where um which is where my mom is from actually it says in the 90s it said like Chantal youth demands a better future and it was this mural that depicted like kind of like the substance abuse of like a lot of young people um police harassment um and it had um a very kind of like nineties kind of kill your television kind of yeah. like yeah, it was yeah. like kind of like grungy which is pretty like pretty like pretty like weird <laughs> seeing like you know more Republican mural because it's usually like you know as like Irish as it comes so I think like that really stands out and um it's probably definitely my favorite anime but I'm probably biased because I'm always from there <laughs> <laughs> um but in terms of the murals uh in particular reference to Palestine um the first international mural that you do see. Uh, comes in nineteen eighty two. It's a PLO and I and an IRA insurgent holding a weapon. It said that then the quote under it says one struggle, and this uh didn't stop. So in nineteen eighty three as well, there was a mural with three combatants from Kumanaban, the PLO, and the SW African People Organization as well. And the quote under that was sorry between women and armed struggle. So you really see in the eighties, this like emergence of like not just the international. Um, solidarity, but solidarity with women 
um, really socially conscious. And there's, you know, there's even even like murals today of like just like celebrating like Irish culture, like really does encompass, you know, really does kind of delve into all aspects of uh, the Irish life. And that combines the South African struggle, the Palestinian struggle, yeah, and exactly. the Irish struggle. And, the, and women's liberation is yeah. all in one, like, you know what I mean? My, one of my favourites would be the one, I think it's still on the international one, and it's the one of the the two prisoners reaching out. Oh yeah, yeah the POWs. From, yeah, yeah. From, the, from the prison cells through through the iron bars, and one, mm-hmm. one has a tricolor on their sleeve, and the other one has a Palestine flag on their sleeve, and they're holding that uh, one solidarity. I mean, I, w- I, w- I would argue that they all have a political character, to it because oh, yeah. um, you know I would say that as a Marxist but you know even kind of kind of banal ones that you wouldn't think like um, so West Belfast has this really um, really rich you know black taxi which I think a tour you went on like kind of yeah. culture you know, where you know um, they basically drive everyone everywhere they have a mural yeah. dedicated to those workers yeah and the international said did you see that when you were there yeah I saw really the black taxi so, I, th- I thought it was an ad. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just completely blinded by like my just love for black taxes. <laughs> so it's just like, you know. Um, so I'm just going to give my spiel about murals. Yeah. I'm an art historian. And my thing is ephemeral art and how fucking important ephemeral art is. And that's what murals are because it is the most accessible art to everybody it's the most working class art it reaches everybody like pamphlets political cartoons murals public art that's ephemeral and it gets to you it, it yeah. you have like five seconds to express the message and it, mm-hmm. and those murals really like get to the heart of everything especially the pow one with mm-hmm. the the hands um it's too bad that that's been co-opted. Like they have that, they have like uh, they've taken it and uh, one arms the Palestinian arm now says like Uyghur and the other one is like U.S. or something like that. Yep. Was that was that was that doctored or was that it was fact? doctored? Yeah. It was doctored. It's right, not on the worried. murals. Can I actually cut on here? Um, in terms of murals being doctored, so like so like so like I said previously. Um, usually murals and you know officially change where people actually go in and repaint them and do new ones they meet mm-hmm. the condition apart from kind of really like sacred ones so um, in there in the bauxite the Roswell murals uh, painted by the bauxite uh, artists uh, as like a group that's what they're called they don't change one of them uh, but in, in 2003 they were actually doctored by um, by like anti-Zionist activists in there where um, so there was one where it uh, depicts. Do British... you mean Zionists? Sorry, anti-Zionists. Zionists. Zionists are in favor of Israel. Anti-Zionists don't want Israel. Oh yeah, no anti-Zionists. So I'll, I'll explain. It'll, okay, it'll, it'll okay. Make sense. <laughs> it'll like, make sense. It'll make sense. It'll okay. make sense. I'll make it make sense. Okay. Yeah. So um, there was um, it's 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 a, it's of a British uh, you know it's 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 like an anti-British soldier mural. It's that's still there. It's uh, very impressive, and it's um. Some of like a sledgehammer like bitten down a door, um, but they doctored it. They um gave him like an IDF uniform mm-hmm. at the time, which um which the boys about the boys there really didn't like about it, but yeah. um fuck it, it's cool. Like, I so, like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's in dairy. That's that. Well, that. Well, I mean, they. It's not like that anymore. Okay, you know, but dairy, dairy has like, murals too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dairy has loads of murals. Dairy's loads of murals. Yeah, I remember. 
Yeah, loads of murals. Um, and also the free the free Derek Horner as well, which is a uh, very um significant. Um, in terms of um, you know, if we're talking, you know, we're still sticking on Palestine here. There um, there was you know during kind of like the um you know the attempted peace process. Um, you know there was a lot of, again they meet the conditioning, the different conditions of the struggles elsewhere. We all also uh, adapted. So there's an IDF sniper painted as well with a quote that Palestine is the largest concentration camp in the world, thirteen million people. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, you know, and you know, for you know, for you know, for the peace process, do you mean? And stuff like that as well. Um so I think it's very telling as well that even kinda like the Irish like bourgeoisie can't ignore Palestine because it matters too much to the constituency mm-hmm. of the Irish people. So you you know you even see. And I I was reading that Ireland was one of the first countries that recognized Palestine. Yeah. yeah. I think it was in the fifties, maybe. It was a big deal though that yeah. they were one of the first. Yep. So, it that that is that is uh, correct. And um, when the Irish Free State joined the European Economic Community. Which is now the um EU. It was one of the leaders in pushing for kind of like pro stop Palestinian recognition within you know even like within those kind of structures. Mm-hmm. Um, in nineteen seventy four, Syria put forward a motion that the PLO should be recognised as the representative for Palestinian people in, in international, um, negotiations, and um this was supported by uh, the Irish Free State uh, as well and even like bourgeois uh, politicians, which comes as like a even even that like that that's like a massive shock to me. That's like in our European country during the Second Civil War, the so-called mm-hmm. Troubles, um, pushing for a motion that like the IRA be like the international like yeah. you know negotiation, which came like as a massive shock to me when I learned about that during my research for this. And you know, you even you had like early Free State foreign ministers and ex IRA members, um, in the uh, nineteen in the nineteen fifties that were co opted kind of into that um colonial government. Um, so in 1958, the Free State Foreign Minister said that the plight of uh, Palestinians was the greatest signal obstacle, the solutions of the problems in uh, the region. And even um, kind of through like, like banal sort of life, just as like uh, growing up in like Irish Republican communities, it's, I think it's, it, it, sometimes it has a negative effect because you kind of just see Palestine everywhere. Like I didn't even know, know until I was much older in my childhood that Palestine wasn't like an internationally recognized country by everyone. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I just kind of assume, oh, there's a Palestine fight. That's a place that exists. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which of course it does. But I didn't realize yeah. that. But I didn't realize that there there was this whole like contention. But a lot of times when you grow up in that banality, it kind of kind of masks you from like kind of like the struggle uh, behind it as well. But mm-hmm. doing every like facet of like Irish life from like cultural, political, um, and revolutionary like Palestine is always representative. Like Rory would be a big fan of. Celtic Football Club, uh, the Glasgow team, uh, that was founded um, by Irish uh, immigrants in uh, 1888. And um, like there are kind of ultra groups, like the, the ultra fans uh, called the Green, called the Green Brigade. When did you play that Israeli team again? Boo! <laughs> Celtic played a team from Jerusalem. Yifa, the European, the European football body, the main European football body. Oh yeah, it's not the part Essentially, bans all political tifos or displays mm. of football matches. 
and Silic drew this team from Israel in, in the, one of the UEFA European competitions. Right, so you might be confused why is why an Israeli team is playing in the, like the European competitions because if they played the one, everyone would just be like, we just hate them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, they <have> to. <laughs> so when they played each other, Silic fans uh, and the club had regularly been fined and sort of berated by UEFA for engaging in the continual political displays at the mm-hmm. football matches. So by the time it came around to play the home game, against uh, the side from Jerusalem, there was a warning out from UEFA saying don't fly any Palestinian flags or anything like that. And the whole other section was, there was hundreds and thousands of Palestinian flags. Yeah. They, they, the fans ignored, ignored and accepted yeah. the fine. And that oldest group itself are very working class in its roots and do a lot of food bank drives and that mm-hmm. sort of thing in the community as well. So there is, there is that solidarity and it extends into sport life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well. Yeah, even like um, like Di, like Di said, it would be a much smaller club than Celtic, obviously. But the Red Partisans, which is the ultra group there, do like the uh, exact same thing. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and like it, like it, it's again, like I think it's twofold. Like a lot of times, like just as we were growing up, like we probably just didn't like go and learn like about what that was because mm-hmm. it was just so like like it, like, it so didn't weird. even it, it didn't even feel like a like a contagious. If and particularly for me, probably different, slightly different for Roy because he grew up in the Union there while I grew up in the Republican area. Where like, I didn't meet like a Protestant until I was like sixteen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean, wow, like, do like do I mean like outside of um outside of like adults? Do you know I mean like 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 someone my age? Like mm-hmm. as I say, they're probably about sixteen, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Like, um, as Jews, young. like we talk about this a lot on the podcast, is that we're just bombarded with Israeli, and mm-hmm. you have to support Israel imagery like all the time. And even if yeah. you mention the word Palestine, you're you're booted, like. But, but, this, uh, but this is the good version of that. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm very jealous. Like, we talk a lot about how lonely it is to be an anti-Zionist yeah. Jew and yeah. to support Palestine because you're really ostracized from the community and you're yeah. pretty much kicked out. And there aren't many temples that are anti-Zionist. Um, so I'm pretty jealous that you just have Palestine flags and the support for Palestine is. Just really there in the community, like integrated into the community. So I think, um, as well as that, an our like affinity, uh, because it is like after the eighties, it did become a consistent position in Republicanism. They support, you know, because you know, I I would I would feel comfortable saying that um you know the North here was an apartheid state, obviously, um Israel Palestine that's an mm-hmm. apartheid relation, um South Africa of course was mm-hmm. an apartheid state. You had a lot of um South African. Um, solidarity as well, particularly in the nineties, because both of those, um, you know, both of those processes, you know, they were both societies in transition at the time, um, and uh, people, um, you know, there was both, you know, the release of the prisoners, negotiations, reconciliation, that resonated really strongly with us, you know, you have Jerry Adams, I mean, with Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg in nineteen ninety five, you know, you have a lot of, again like South African murals in nineteen eighty six, um, there was one. Kind of, right of like a cell of like a Celtic circle, mm-hmm. um, that says uh Bar- which is, which is um like an Irish slogan as long as uh, along with uh, like a lot um I believe it was Nelson Mandela at the time as well and uh, with uh Benjamin uh, Malusi quote that says tell world freedom is at hand, um so you know this is com- you know, this is a consistent position and I'm quite happy that Republicans did take that route, after. The uh eighties as well, but it is regrettable that it didn't happen, um a lot sooner, mm-hmm. um 
And I, I, I wouldn't be certain as to why. You could probably say something about how Irish, um, as, as much as Irish nationalism is is uh, a revolutionary and socialist nationalism, um, particularly in like America and a lot of like Irish like diaspora like has been incorporated in the white supremacy quite a lot. Yeah. Probably, pro- probably would have some effect on that. It's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It is definitely. It goes back to the old adage of like, republicanism has always been a broad church really, and the role of class in republicanism sort of dips in and out through mm-hmm. Irish history. Yeah. So like during the Fenian rebellions, mm-hmm. um, they they mentioned. There, there's, there's a specific quote in their manifesto which relates to the socialisation of property mm-hmm. and, and this sort of thing. And then later, the United Irishmen, inspired by by the French Revolution themselves, adopted essentially liberty, fraternity, and called themselves the men of no property, mm-hmm. essentially as well. Um, and then obviously Conley in 1916. Yeah. So it's really the role of class in Irish republicanism mm-hmm. because once... You can with you can withdraw a class analysis from republicanism, and it very much becomes this like supremacist yeah. and thing. And yeah. we're starting to see that now through organized fascist organizations in Ireland, mm-hmm. saying call themselves patriots and like trying I, to. I've like, noticed that. I thought that was yeah. super strange. Yeah, and they, they again it. because because as you say, like some of these things like become like Palestine solidarity mm-hmm. or like like the image of Conley is this like mm-hmm. as like an Irish liberator like comes so enshrined within like the Irish psyche that like even fascists try and adopt these figures. Yeah. So like but you need Marxism with nationalism. Yeah. Like yeah. You can't just take Mark. You can't take the class yeah. analysis yeah. out of that. Because yeah. if we're not free, if we're not all free, we're not all free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to go back to what I was saying, the first declaration by the Fenian movement on the seventeenth of March, eighteen fifty eight, underlined a commitment to the needs uh, of the working people said that the organisation was aimed at, quote, at founding a republic based on universal suffrage, which shall secure all the intrinsic value of their labour. So it's applying a class analysis to yeah. republicanism because if you don't if you don't have one without the other, um, then it's either socialism within a British federal mm-hmm. republic system, which is what some Trotskyists in Ireland advocate Whoa! for. Um, and if you have... Go on, sorry. And if you have republicanism without a class analysis, um, it morphs into exactly what we've seen after the Civil War in Ireland and the creation of Free State. Mm-hmm. So it was Conley that synthesised the two, the socialist republicanism, mm-hmm. um, and that republicanism is based off um, based off an imperialist position against the super-exploitation of yeah. the working class in Ireland as well. Yeah. Um, something that Conley has been enshrined in its politics this day. So... Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention actually, uh, earlier, just when we were talking about that, uh, the the the, the like apartheid nature of uh, the Northern Orange State, was that in the annual report for the done by the Employment Trust in nineteen eighty six, which is hardly you know like a revolutionary body, it was like it was like a local charity, it wasn't affiliated with any Republican organization, or whatever. Their assessment of um Irish Northern society at the time, they called it Westminster's apartheid economy. Um. So you know it it. You know, it wasn't just you know strictly like you know a republican thing a nationalist thing you know this was recognized by like basically everyone at the time uh even by um organizations sort of actually lengthy like this like you know, state apparatus at the time that we were just doing apartheid you mm-hmm. know um and they were you know quite happy with that um me and roy were actually speaking earlier on about how um kind of before the podcast that 
we do understand why there is a, a contention of some people, even people that would be, you know, probably as well, if not calling it an apartheid state, because it wasn't officially enshrined in law. Um, there was a lot of underhanded tactics that the Orange State did use. They put forward no apartheid and that segregation, like, you know, for example, both Catholic and Protestant rate payers had the same rights if they were paying rates in terms of voting. But the way that they used like the apparatus of the state to um you know put forward um anti you know Catholic laws when it came to housing. Well not anti Catholic laws, but you know, motions and um structure. Structure. Aye. Um one of the reasons why we think that they couldn't officially come out um with an apartheid law was probably because of where Ireland is placed geographically, because it's so close to the Imperial Corps, mm-hmm. especially around the um, you know, the civil rights movement at the, at, at the time in Ireland, which is being across the world, and the student protests in France and um, in uh, America as well, the civil rights movement, it's just so hard that they couldn't mm-hmm. turn over and the resistance as well of the paramilitary groups, but they definitely would have if they could have. Yeah. Um, and definitely. colonialism and apartheid states, the common theme is, is they, need, they need to condition their own colonizer people. To engage, to engage with that system, and that's based off racism, whether it's mm-hmm. against uh, black people or whether it's against um, Arabs mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever the case is. There wasn't that race distinction between Irish people mm-hmm. and people who identified as British in mm-hmm. Ireland at the time. So it made it harder to justify apartheid along racial lines in that way, whereas it would have been easier to do in South Africa or, mm-hmm. or in Israel itself. So. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about Gaddafi, please? Yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> so I think I think um I think uh, Gaddafi like really holds like a special place in um republicanism, basically because, for example, for twenty five years, during the troubles, every bomb detonated by the IRA contains Santex from Libya. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, and like you know, I you know, I Gaddafi himself obviously, um, you know, strongly identified with um, with the struggle here, and you know, you know, he called like you know the Irish comrades in arms. Yeah, it's something I never realized actually that you you just heard about Semtex all the time. Yeah, never <laughs> like you just like growing up like knowing about Irish <laughs> history and like being taught to by like orally through by people and stuff like that. I never actually realized that Semtex was Libyan. Like yeah, that's like awesome. it never that never occurred to me. It was, um, it was coming out like somewhere around. So especially because um beforehand um a lot of like IRA uh, weaponry and professional IRA IRA weaponry getting drunk um <laughs> were uh, um relied on that's the point of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stalin did nothing wrong. It's true. <laughs> where, that's where it usually is. Yeah. See, see I'm cancelled yet again. <laughs> so, or we start uh, crying over the fall of the USSR. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, during the during the sixties and before this Libyan um kind of support, um the professional IRA was basically relying on World War Two weaponry. Which is obviously completely inefficient given kind of like the development of like, even like rifles at the time, kind of and like in the seventies, you know, with the you know with the AK forty seven, as well. Um, so Gaddafi saw the problem, really strongly identified it against Britain in nineteen eighty six. A cargo marked property of the Libyan army, which I find is weird, just to declare <laughs> that like that's what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm yeah. sort of shocked. I'm not. I'm not questioning. Sure like, right yeah, right like, 
morning. We're just about just cool here. Um, guns. Uh, uh, yeah, just like, like I might, I might, I might as well have been like, like search, search like, here, like, yeah, like, like an Amazon or like a UPS. Like, I've never seen package being like for the IRA. Like, I ordered my APMs so, on Amazon. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, it was brought, it was brought to shore and beach in County Wiglow in the south and smuggled to the border. It included ten samosides. Which was like an, again like a, like a like a really massive development in terms of before they were using you know what would be they would call them dead sticks and stones now they really mm-hmm. had proper weaponry a ton of Santex and I, like I mean like as that as a weight not just yeah. like that, um <laughs> huge plastic explosives obviously the the advantage of Santex is that it uh, produces a lot more powerful blast than fertilizer based bombs um and it doesn't denigrate. Uh, as well, um, like the fertilizer one does as well, and that's why they were able to continue to use that for twenty five years, and then like literally like the year after, so like you just kept trying to do it. Um, in nineteen eighty seven, French authorities stopped the ship. You know, unfortunately, they're not unfortunately depend on your position on that. It was basically it was on it was on its way to Ireland, and it was carrying one thousand AK forty seven machine guns, fifteen fifty um. You know, air missiles as well, and two tons of Santex this time. Air missiles? Do you say air missiles? Yeah. What are they called? Ground two air missiles. Yeah. Over, yes. over 50 of them. Shoot helicopters. That's <laughs> So I, I just, uh, I'm not quite sure how you're going to en- enter that in the podcast, but I could not, not talk about Gaddafi. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Yeah. That's beautiful. But, um, like, e- even, um, Again, it's the same thing with the PLO. You did have that cooperation of, um, you know, fighters going over to AAA as well and training. And like even like even like the way that that like the like I IRA would organize it, so you can like read this and like a lot of books that were written as well. Um, and like and I I noticed from what have just been told to me as well that like they would have they would have these like kind of meetings in like community centers, um, with like all our like vol- uh, IRA volunteers and be like. Say who wants to help our comrades in AAA know how to disarm a bomb or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then people think, well, there you go. And this is, yeah. is, is, is <laughs> well, after AAA. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, you know the, these are these are people who never even left their like you know like estates like mm-hmm. you know beforehand. Never mind, you know, like the north or Ireland mm-hmm. or anywhere, just going straight to AAA just to do it like that. Did you have anybody go to Kurdistan from Ireland? We did. There were Irish there was, people. There was, there was a there was British and Irish to go to YPG yeah. YPJ. Yeah, um, there was a British and Irish. Yeah. Oh, that one British woman went. No, yeah, I don't know if she was English, with you. Wasn't she? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a bu- there was a bunch of English, but I don't know if they were associated with like yeah, Irish revolutionary um, things. Not to my knowledge. Okay. Not to my knowledge. Um, but so it wasn't it wasn't a super common thing. No, no especially not especially not compared to Britain. Have, no. uh, have you had any like CYM members or CPI members that go to Palestine just to create international solidarity there or relationships? There were CP members at the time they were CYM member, but I think each like the organization um went with a contingent to Palestine and sort of do the humanitarian work and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's something it's something that as we grow and develop as an organization and our international legs become deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um that we would obviously aim to do yeah um, because, as international yeah I mean I, I think like a lot of people like a lot of people need to realise as well like you know this this CYM has basically been built from the ground up in the past few years mm-hmm. it's really only become a proper organisation the past year, year and a half two years you know obviously you know there was earlier iterations of the CYM 
you know, you had one that collapsed, uh, you know, after a fall of Soviet as well, you know, er, you know, everything <laughs> Um but um and we're one out. And you know we yeah. and you know we know out for the hobby. <laughs> and you know uh, you know we're not we're not it's not easy if we're supported by, you know, like an establishment political party. You're you know? very grassroots. So um in saying that uh, as well, uh, we actually had um, one of our members of the Belfast branch uh, was in the Basque Country very recently as well. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, it is it, it it is something that I think as we grow on, um, that's something that we'll strive to do a lot more on that. Would you have Palestinians come here too and like meet with you and so, sort of like what we're doing right now, just yes. building that community? Yeah. So um, best organization to go for that would undoubtedly be um and. You know, some of our members on the special on national level would also be involved in a lot of that would be the Irish Palestinian uh, solidarity campaign as well, which is obviously mm-hmm. cross party. But you know, for every New Year's they actually have a vigil for Palestine at like every bridge and every single urban centre in Ireland. And like again, you know, you have people who would go to it and you know, for better or for worse, people who aren't really involved in politics but still identify with it mm-hmm. and just like go out. Because you know, again, it is it is that reverse thing that the Irish have had with Palestine, the Jews have had with Israel, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but again, uh, this is probably sort of a good leeway in the um how like all like Austrism and Austro loyalism um has like identified itself with Israel. There is um a temptation, I would say, by a lot of people. They kind of dismiss this, uh, even like amongst Republican circles, who would basically just say that it's just because we have. Palestinian flags, so they're just doing that, just they annoy us. Um, and they're fascists. Yeah. Thinking about it logically, that if Austrolism wants to justify the state and the existence, then it has to justify Israel as well. It, it would be be ideologically inconsistent uh, to do that. Um, Shit, that's super true. Yeah. You know exactly. Yeah, so. Um, oh, by the way, um, Berbio translates to um. Oh, yeah, I probably should have said that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I take back. Ex- <laughs> take the factories, yes. Take victory. Um, take the factory. That too. <laughs> um, but, uh, originally, like that saying, originally comes from Berbu August Banacht, which means take victory and a blessing. But as a materialist, I just drop. I just drop the ladder. <laughs> take victory, full stop. So, I heard factory. That's, that's, what, that's what crosspot is. Like, take factory. Take you factory. <laughs> This is not, this is Irish or like. I've got another question. Isn't TAG like a term used for Catholics in Northern Ireland? Yeah, yeah so TAG would probably be seen as more of a slur. Yeah. Uh, than yeah, This is why I have a no British talking rule. I spent the last hour like wanting to fucking cry. You should have cried. TAG? It'll fit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last hour I'm gonna call you a fucking tag. <laughs> I was raised as a fucking Catholic, so hold on, I'm not gonna slur not, the Catholics. Not Irish. The church is Catholic. Good point. I mean, my mum's fine. Well, my mum and that side of the family are fucking Irish. My great grandmother came over during the family. No, not one. I just have the misfortune of being born in England. So I've been to Occupy Palestine. I posted this on Facebook, but the feeling that I had there is like the same exact feeling I've had here. Like it's like just seeing the walls, and the, there's a whole atmosphere and a whole there's these vibes that are just 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really sad. Um, it's really depressing um, just knowing that that there are people who are just being oppressed for no reason other than they were born to the wrong, to the quote-unquote wrong uh, family. Full, and full admission. Shane, Shane I was fucking talking. I was talking. We'll let him put the business perspective anyway. No, no, I'm just saying off the record. We're not recording right now, Shane. So keep your mouth shut. It's no longer a question of... Yeah, one thing I want to bring back to, I think the last proper point that I made there was about how, in terms of justifying the state of Israel and justifying the situation here, um, they obviously go identified. Now, in uh, Derry, again, actually, I keep talking about Derry. Um, the Derry's a big fucking deal, John, too. <laughs> John, John, John Craig, uh, he was a, a member of the Ulster Defence Association, which the uh, UDA was one of the like lead members of it. So uh, recounted a marching band, and a loyalist marching band going through uh, the bog site in Derry, actually, and they flew an Israeli flag. He says, quote, most of the band wanted it just for a wind-up to annoy the bog setters, but my thing is... There's the IRA, the PLO, and the ANC, and I detest all three of them. So here you see is that like you have like sort of like these loyalist kind of flute bands, people not really involved that that we know of based off this code anyway, in terms of kind of like you know like the leadership of like the UDA, but here you have like the leadership of those organizations like strongly identifying with Israel, even if it and sort of using just like inherent like anti-republicism, anti-catholicism, they kind of drive that home. They like kind of the rank and file as well, now, which would probably be the most accurate assessment of it, in my opinion. If you talk to like your average person who would just vote the UP about Israel, they wouldn't really know mm-hmm. anything. Uh, but if you talk to kind of the average person that would vote for Sinn Féin, sort of just, you know, even like moderate, you know, like Republicans in that way, they, you know, they do have that strong family. While... If you talk to like uh like a modern like unionist leader like hardline unionist leader like like Jamie Bryson for example, or um well Willie Fraser's dad now but um him as well uh they really like a strong like strongly identify with like Israel, but you also have you know you also have loyalism coming in kind of in in a lot of contradiction on Israel and their family with it um because they also very strongly identify with right-wing groups in Britain who were, you know, expressly neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had this really, really peculiar situation where there was one spotted in 2002, an Israeli flag in a lot of terror, along with the flags of um, South Africa and Canada, flew over a mural in South Belfast, painted underneath for a swastika and the letters KKK. You know what I mean? Uh, Holy shit, that's yeah, a lot exactly. happening. And that was, and that was, <laughs> it's a lot to take it. That was in 2002. <laughs> but I mean, that, a that lot was... of neo-Nazis support Israel because a lot of them are fundamentalist Christians who believe that once all the Jews are in oh, Israel, yeah, yeah. it's better pickings for when yeah. the rapture comes yeah. and they can send all the Jews to hell immediately. You see that happening like with like Netanyahu's relationship with the Hungarian administration mm. right now where... They're very friendly, uh, because Netanyahu wants more, you know, wants more immigration back to Israel. Yeah, and Netanyahu's son is a Nazi. He will retweet. Wait, Netanyahu isn't. Well, not Netanyahu <laughs> is a, essentially a Nazi. He's a fucking fascist. But yeah, uh, his son is definitely a Nazi for sure. Did you see Netanyahu's son's tweet? 
Wait, Harland? No. Last week? Oh, God. What did it say? I... I think... That's a big breath. I... <laughs> <laughs> so many distracted this year. <laughs> a member of the royal family tweeted that... A member of the royal family tweeted that a delegation of British diplomats were going over to meet Israeli representatives. Yeah. But in the tweet, they framed it as occupied Palestine. Mm-hmm. This is coming from the royal family, right? Mm-hmm. And Netanyahu's son replies to the tweet below saying, use occupied Ireland. Rich. Yeah. That's really yeah. rich coming from him. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's right. That's uh, as close as I can imagine it, to be honest. But um, it's it was something along the So uh, this, is, this is an R. Kind of point I was making there between like, like loyalist leadership and like rank and file, like average day, like unionists, mm-hmm. um, are loyalists. The UDA explained in two thousand and two, written that the Protestant people of Ulster have a certain apathy with the Israelis because it is also a nation under siege. The Israeli flags only went up to show disgust at the Republican community, who held meetings with Palestinian fundamentalists before they embarked on their you know, suicide bombs. Obviously, it's a disgusting um quote there mm-hmm. from the. Uh, UDA, but it really shows how um it was sort of like you know the leadership of those organizations you know uh, was really strongly identified with Israel because they were the most ideologically committed to the Orange State uh, to mm-hmm. the six counties here being occupied, and then they sort of funnel that down and new sectarianism, um between um just you know average day uh, unionists they sort of just basically as, as like a wedge against like the Palestinian um saw so the Irish Palestinian affinity. Mm-hmm. So you keep saying the orange state. What do you mean by that? <laughs> we just so sort of talked about that from the create like as the I I would call it the Protestant state for the Protestant people that the Provisional IRA smashed that state in which the subjugation of Catholics and nationalists occurred exclusively Protestant force etc. Police force that's the orange state. Right. Um, based off William of Orange, who won the Battle of the Boyne mm-hmm. in sixteen ninety. So that's the orange state, and then once. Good Friday Agreement was signed and power sharing occurred. I would call that the sectarian state where sectarianism mm-hmm. is completely institutionalised yeah. and nationalists and unionists go in, both go in to government with one another in a hunt power sharing system and from both sides of the community ruthlessly enforce neoliberalism on the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Do you have any closing thoughts or how can we, how can people connect with you or is there a Twitter account you want to want people to follow or a Facebook account yeah so the Conley Youth Movement would be most visible on Facebook and Twitter you can just guess it Conley Youth Movement okay or CYM there's a host of articles by us on our website we featured in articles in the Morning Star the Mm -hmm. British workers paper as well Mm -hmm. so CYM Google great website Facebook Twitter Instagram as well I believe the handle for Twitter is at Conley YM yeah okay and if you want to get in touch with us regarding international events, you can email us at international at cym.au. Yeah, our, um, our international um, officer on the NEC. Yeah. Or alternatively, just uh, the CYM email as well. Um, yeah. Did a general secretary. Okay. So this is the end of Pearls <laughs> of the Minyan. I'm really used to Yakov doing this. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at PearlsMinion or you can email us at PearlsMinion at gmail.com 
Or you can become a Patreon where you can hear me do spiels about art history because I guess people want that. Um, also, our Davening After Dark episodes will be put on to our Patreon account, which is also Minion at patreon.com. You got anything else, Aha? Solidarity forever. Chucky our fucking
Thank you.
Ah. Uh... 